0: Hello and welcome to Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking. Thanks for joining us. I'm Malcolm Borthwick, Managing Editor of Intellectual Capital at Bailey Gifford. There are lots of reasons not to invest in Europe. Its economic growth is uninspiring, and much of its stock index is made up of bureaucratic corporate dinosaurs. Also, Europe lacks a disruptive tech and social media companies found in the US and China, such as Apple, Facebook and Tencent. So what's the attraction? To find out, I'm joined in our Edinburgh studio by Stephen Pace, joint manager of the European Fund. But before we start the conversation, some important information. Please remember that, as with all investments, your capital is at risk and past performance is not a guide to future returns. Stephen, why invest in Europe?
1: Well, firstly, thank you very much for that lovely, positive introduction to Europe. Um, Hopefully, we haven't scared everybody off. But I I think it's a a pertinent point that um, the sentiment just now in Europe is just so negative. It's as negative as I've seen it for almost a decade I was at a conference um, at the start, there was an online poll or an electronic poll, and the kind of announcer, presenter, um, asked all the delegates in the audience which region would they most like to allocate more money to, or assets to, over the next six months. And when the poll result came in, uh, Europe was at the very bottom. So it had the least amount of people that were looking at that region to invest more of their, their capital. And I think that stems from a number of reasons we're just bombarded with negative headlines in the press, the FT, um, the newspapers, uh, the, the general press and media. I think people are worried about GDP slowing, as I think the numbers are now showing. Uh, obviously, the impact of Brexit. We have the Donald, uh, Mr Trump, causing some issues with trade wars. And for mainly those kind of top-down macroeconomic um, and geopolitical reasons, a lot of investors are still sitting in the sidelines. But if you're maybe presenting it as a contrarian idea as as such, is the reason why Europe presents such an opportunity. And when we look at Europe, we look at it at a very different way. We look at it from the bottom up. So we're identifying and focusing on the individual companies first, and we're not paying so much attention to the macroeconomics, which we know mostly doesn't really have that much to do with stock market returns. And as an investor, is it difficult to block out that noise, that negative sentiment? It is. Um, Perhaps one of the benefits of being based in Edinburgh is that we're not so much in that bubble that exists around London and some of the other financial um, centres around the world. It's part of our culture. It's part of the way Bailey Gifford operates. Um, We have been bottom-up, long-term investors um, for over 100 years now. And It just comes through practice. Um, We're now much better at avoiding and ignoring a lot of the noise. Um, We rarely pick our phones up these days. I mean, it's much more like a library, um, as you know, in office. And I, I think that comes through repetition. So the more time we spend looking at individual companies, the more time we spend looking back through history, trying to identify what works and what doesn't. We kind of realize that... Um, The way to generate long term sustainable returns is not to try and second guess the market or what's happening in the economy or what the outcome of the next election is going to be. It's focusing on those big winners. It's focusing on those special companies uh, run by entrepreneurs, um, people that we trust that have kind of greater than average chance of generating um, outstanding returns. And, And that's what you have to do to provide your clients with with good value.
0: It's interesting you talk about looking back through history because you have done some research into what's made some of the most successful companies in Europe successful,
1: haven't you? Yes. So, again, when we were looking back, I I mean, I think we now know that most of the returns in stock markets and portfolios are generated by a relatively small number of companies. So what we wanted to do was focus on the European market and compare that to some of the other regions that um, create a lot more excitement and optimism, particularly in the US and China and so on. So what we did was we we looked at um, the European market over the last 30 years. And what we wanted to identify were all of the companies within that period, within each discrete ten-year block, that appreciated more than 10 times. And this is where the kind of the phrase 10-baggers um, comes from. What does that
0: mean, 10-baggers? Well, I mean, it,
1: I think it actually originally came from baseball. Um, so a four-bagger w- was used to uh, describe the home run. So in effect, this would be two home runs and a double, it was described as. So a 10-bagger effectively means that um, in the stock market parlance, that um, the company's share price will appreciate more than tenfold. So if you invest £100 um, over a 10-year period, if it was a 10-bagger, obviously you'd get £1,000. And that's what we want to identify. I mean, these will be a relatively small subset of the European market, but when we looked at the number, for instance, of companies that um, appreciated more than tenfold or these 10-baggers, The probabilities of finding one of these, let's say, 10 baggers in Europe is pretty much the same as it is in the other markets I mentioned, like the US and China. So this gives you some uh, confidence. It gives certainly us some confidence that Europe still offers those kind of long-term bottom-up stock pickers a a fabulous place to find and invest money. And I think that one of the interesting points that came out of looking at these kind of big winners in these different markets was that while the probabilities were the same, the opportunity sets were different. So in Europe, for instance, we don't have a, a tech sector as developed and as big as the one that exists in the US, which is driving a lot of the stock performance there with companies like Facebook, Amazon, Apple, etc. Um, in Europe, we've got a slightly different mix of companies. And what we found was that the types of businesses that do well or have done well in Europe um, are typically less glamorous. I think that's probably a good way to describe them. These will be your classic Mittelstand companies in Germany, but typically niche. And that,
0: that's your small, medium-sized. Yeah, these German are these, these
1: are kind of small, medium-sized uh, niche B two B or business to business type companies, which will operate in fairly niche markets or industries. They could be um, chemicals distributors, um, auto parts manufacturers, rubber compounders. I mean, there's lots and lots of these kind of small idiosyncratic companies that, importantly, tend to dominate markets. They will be extremely profitable. Um, More often than not, they will have a founder, or at least a family involved, so that gives them a different outlook. It, it, It allows them to invest with a much longer-term horizon. Um, so there was a lot of these kind of niche B2B industrial businesses, but there were also a lot of med techs, um, business-to-business services, um, and consumer discretionary. The, the other thing Europe has done very well over a very long period of time is produced some fantastic brands. So this is the luxury brands like Gucci, which carrying now owns. It would be companies like... Hermes, uh, um, even Puma, Hugo Boss, I mean, uh, Richemont, which owns Cartier, which is probably the best um, hard luxury brand in the world, I think. So th- these pockets of excellence still exist in Europe. And I think that's what, again, um, should hopefully persuade Euro- um, people that or investors that want to look at Europe, that while the, the opportunity set is different, we still have a great chance of making a lot of money.
0: Give me an example of one of those idiosyncratic companies where there are barriers of entry.
1: One of our, in fact, it's the largest holding we have is, is a, a Dutch specialty chemicals distributor called IMCD. And this is a company where the, the risk of technological obsolescence is pretty low. And it effectively acts as a, a consultant. So it's connecting chemicals suppliers to hundreds and if not thousands, of chemicals customers. Um, And it's kind of the middleman economics. It's a network-type business. Um, It outsources the distribution and logistics and warehousing, so it's actually fairly capital-light. But the attraction here is that it operates in a really unglamorous, unsexy industry. This is the one I visited in Rotterdam recently. And even though it operates in this fairly niche market, it's by far the largest. So even though it's the largest it only has perhaps three or four percent of the global specialty chemicals distribution market so there's a huge kind of room and scope for it to to continue growing and it's also the natural acquirer and consolidator of that market so the founder who still runs the business today he set it up almost 20 years ago and works out of this really small head office in Rotterdam and I think there's probably six or seven people there Um, it's pretty small. But they're, they're nimble, they're quick. And as they operate in a type family founder type business model, they attract other family founder type businesses who want to sell to them. So their strategy is to buy up all of these smaller um, distributors across the world and slot them into the network. And there's lots of these smaller businesses that from the outset don't look particularly attractive. But when you actually get into the business the types of things that we look for in terms of growth competitive position and alignment and um, these are the businesses in europe which stack up really well and these are the ones we, that we're attracted to it's not the large banks it's not some of the larger um, energy companies that's not our style of investing and that's not where we think we're able to add much value or where any investors are likely to make outstanding returns
0: You mentioned earlier founder leaders. I mean, Europe has a very deep history of founder leaders in running its businesses, doesn't it?
1: Yes, and I mean, whether it's, I mean, you're looking at Scandinavia or, I mean, Europe in general, you you tend to see a lot of very kind of traditional companies that are now run by multi-generational families. So in, in Sweden's a classic example um, where you've got a, a number of com- or a number of families rather that effectively control holding companies and those holding companies effectively um, control or have a great influence on the boards of a lot of other companies that exist in those markets. And by having that kind of um, ownership and family oversight, you tend to see that these businesses are much more adaptable and are able to survive exogenous shocks, whether it's a recession or downturn, because these are the companies which, it's not just families, it will be a founder type business as well, that that they're running their business, if it's a family, to pass on to the next generation in a better shape than they inherited it. And if it's a founder, it's your baby, you don't want anything to happen to it. So this is why they're probably less prone to take risks or um, undertake value-destructive acquisitions at the top of the market, where that might be the case in a kind of a bureaucratic company where the the chief exec is incentivized just to grow as big as he can, a kind of a a, a typical empire builder. So I think when you look at alignment, um, Europe does kind of punch above its weight in terms of the composition of the market being run by families or founders, um, and I think that automatically and again this is backed up with a lot of academic evidence this type of ownership tips the odds in your favor of outperforming so this is why we put a lot of focus on these types of ownership models and I think in the fund probably at the moment um, by weight it's probably about 80 percent of the investments that we've made will be in a a company that is either run or owned or managed by a founder or, or some type of meaningful inside owner
0: and how do you deal with generational transfer? Because there is a drop-off in the success of companies after, say, the second generation and then the the third generation, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the... I think it's called the stupid son syndrome or even in some countries it's clogs to clogs in three generations. And th- there is the risk that... A company will be passed on, it's kind of classic nepotism where the, the, the founder will pass it on to his son or daughter and they may not be suitable for running a business and, and that is something that you need to watch for. A lot of the multi-generational families however that we've seen will tend to take a back seat. So when the founder maybe retires or moves off the board, the family members tend to then go on to the supervisory board to protect the family interest and then uh, bring in professionals to actually run the business. So that's how to mitigate some of the, the problems with that. Um however that there are examples where the the founder, who's been very successful in his own or her own right, has then passed it on to the son, who's gone on to be even more successful. Um and I can think of examples like Kingspan. You know, it's an Irish building um, construction materials company which again the, the son took over and helped internationalise that business and has taken it from strength to strength the underlying point is that you, you can't use any of these rules to guarantee success in anything you, you have to look at each business on a case by case basis you have to look at who's running it whether they're suitable whether the incentives are aligned with what we would like um, and take it from there but certainly when we look at Europe the, again there, there are um, hundreds of these businesses which are are run in a very entrepreneurial and long-term manner.
0: That's a good place to leave our podcast. Thanks very much for joining
1: us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.
0: And you can find our podcast, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our website at baileygifford.com forward slash podcasts. We hope you enjoy it and please spread the word. And if you'd like to find out more about what we've discussed in this podcast, You can find Stephen's paper, The Hunt for Europe's Ten Baggers, in the Insights section of our website at baileygifford.com. And many thanks to Lord of the Isles for the music. Until next time.